0: Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that a flourishing world is still possible, and that, together, we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, co-founder of Accidental Gods, and our aim with this podcast is to dive deep into the generative intersection where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality so that we can create the ecosystem of understanding that will bridge us to the world we need to see. And this is our anniversary edition. We have been going for a year. And so today, on the solstice, the dark night of the year, the long night, when the seeds of the new year are set, we wanted to do something different. We wanted, in fact, to establish a tradition. So today's podcast is a three-way pod boom in which I am joined by two other podcast hosts who have been real inspirations for what we do here. They have been guests, but more than that, I listened endlessly to their podcasts when we were designing Accidental Gods. Della Duncan is a friend, a teacher, a mentor, and host of the long-standing Upstream podcast, that seeks to explore the origins of where we are so that we can find the ways to change. Natalie Nahai is also a friend, an inspiration, and a guiding light in the world of podcasts. She's host of The Hive, which inquires deeply into our journey with ourselves, with each other, and with the natural world. And so today, together, we explore the learning of the old year, and the possibilities of the new one yet to come. We give each other gifts, and we offer our hopes for 2021. And we also have some music, echoing the song that Rob Shorter offered in episode 41. We Shall Be Known was originally written and recorded by Mamuse, and there have been so many other versions since then. But now we have two, specially recorded for us, by Jen Forty and her friends in Portland, Oregon. The first, which will come at the start, is Jen with her friend Melody Sunshine and Melody's mother, Diane Sobchek. I hope I pronounced this right. Anyway, I loved the intergenerational nature of that one. The one at the end is a slightly different version with Jen, with Carrie Kent and Sarah Alexander. And in both cases, the technical recording was by Greg Hyatt. So people of the podcast, rest your ears with We Shall Be Known. And then welcome Della Duncan and Natalie Nahai.
1: We shall be known by the company we keep By the ones who circle round to tend these fires We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds Of change alive from deep within the earth It is time now, it is time now that we thrive. It is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. We shall be known by the company we keep By the ones who circle round to tend these fires We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth It is time now, it is time now that we thrive It is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love.
0: Welcome to our joint solstice, end of year. Beginning of next year podcast. This comes from Upstream and the Hive and Accidental Gods. And here today we have Natalina High, Della Duncan, and Manda Scott. And this is the first time we've done this. And it feels like I hope it becomes one of those traditions that we can do for a long time because this feels like one of my favorite concepts and connected ways of being that I could possibly imagine. So we were going to start off. We have ideas, obviously. It will probably evolve beyond those ideas. But in the beginning, before everything has completely changed from what we planned, Natalie, you were going to start with your bookend question from the high.
2: Sure. Thank you, Manda. And thanks, Della, for this lovely possibility to gather, if not personally, then virtually. So the question that I usually open my conversations with is to ask what's happening in the global human psyche at this moment and to invite whoever the guest is to answer from whatever perspective they hold. I never get to answer this question but also it's, it's a very tricky question to answer for anyone so maybe I should have a shot at it. From my own perspective I feel as though there is a fragmentation happening in the global human psyche that there is a sense of rupture, a sense of uncertainty, of discomfort. If I feel into it, which I was trying to do before this call, I was also sensing quite a lot of grief for unnamed things, for people who are lost, relationships that dissolve, for things that are left unresolved for whatever reason. So I think there's a huge amount of tumult happening in the global human psyche. But at the same time, because there's so much fracture, there's also the possibility to rebuild in a way that we haven't been able to before. So I think there's a huge amount of potential, almost like the, the black void of potential that you get before the birthing of something. So I feel that's probably how I'd begin to answer that particular question. Della, would you like
3: to, to offer your thoughts? Yeah, thank you, Natalie. I think one thing that I'm sensing is depression, a real questioning of hope or a future. And a loss of energy and action and a will, will to act. And I know personally, and I've seen in others, that depression, if you go deep, deep, deep enough, there, there is this sense of being held by the universe. And I love this Marion Williamson quote who says, depression can be a sacred initiation into self-actualization. So what I'm sensing in the global psyche is a a depression for many, a hopelessness for many. And I'm just hoping and praying that as folks keep going down and down and down, that they will feel held by the universe and then able to rise from that source and continue again. Rhonda, your sense? Global psyche?
0: Yeah. It's interesting because mine perhaps because of what I've been reading and who I've been talking to recently, feels more as if there's light at the end of the tunnel than that sounds, and more than the sense of light at the end of the tunnel that I had this time last year. I feel there's that sense of transition, of everything is going to change, nothing is going to be as it was. And it feels like that moment just before dawn, or just before a fire is lit, or just before the lightning strikes, when you feel the pressure and the electricity in the air and you know something huge is coming, but you don't know exactly what it is. And yet, the old wasn't working. We felt comfortable, perhaps, with it, but the way we have been and the trajectory that we have been on is heading for catastrophe. We know that. But I am feeling more hopeful and I'm feeling a sense of more people seeing a path to a different way of being than I have had at any point in my life. So I feel, and, and yes, we need to lean into the discomfort and discomfort is dis- is uncomfortable. That's the point. But I think if we can become comfortable with discomfort, able to, to find the resilience in the uncertainty, then, then I think this next year feels to me like it's a balancing point. I think that more than anything else, it feels that like the coming year is the fulcrum around which everything else turns, and we might crash into chaos and extinction. That's always a possibility, but we might also see the phase shift to something that would be a way of being that the world and we have never known before. And I therefore think that's worth working towards however we get there. It's a brilliant question, Natalie. Thank you.
2: Thanks for your lovely answers. (laughs) Very thought-provoking. And interesting, actually, that we're each holding a different aspect of what's happening. I feel like there are different, different experiences which we together are weaving in and holding, which is lovely. Yes.
0: And I wonder... Perhaps by the end of the podcast, we'll have a sense of how those three strands weave together. I keep seeing the front of Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and that sense of the braiding of ideas and the braiding of feelings and the braiding of being. So what we had as an idea next was that we would each give the other a gift for the turning of the year, the solstice, the the dark nights, and that that would be either a podcast or a film or a book, or frankly, whatever we think the others would like. So, Della, have you got a gift that you would like to give to one or other of me and Natalie?
3: Yeah, I would love to. I have a gift for both of you. It's the same gift. And it may be a gift that you've already enjoyed. And if so, I just invite you to enjoy it again. And it is... uh, the audiobooks of Clarissa Pinkola Estes, mythologist, storyteller. And um, I feel very late to the game. Like, I don't know why I never read or listened to her work before, but this past year I have dove in really deeply. So women who run with wolves, but even more so, I would, I would give to you the dangerous old woman, which I am deep into right now and it's it's actually less of a book and more of her telling stories and anecdotes about aging and being a woman over about 6 or 7 hours <laughs> and it's it's got stories woven in but more importantly for for you both I felt it has a lot of ecological wisdom she gives for example a Uh, The story of heartwood in trees and how it's strengthened by adversity. That the heartwood is strengthened by wind, wind of adversity. And she gives this beautiful uh, example of instead of being hard on the outside and soft on the inside, we ought to be soft and warm and comforting and generous on the outside and hard on the inside, meaning having a deep sense of resilience and strength and dedication to our work, to our values. And I just love her her exploration of the ecology and how she weaves ecological wisdom. And yeah, just for both of you, I invite us to to think about our, our roles as, as women and as, uh, as the female archetype. One more anecdote from that is she really says she really encourages us to not worry about what other people think to really step into who we are and to to do our work with a sense of integrity and without fear of other people's judgments. And so I wish that for both of you. I think you both already do that, but I just wish that for us as we move into the next year. So that would be my gift to you, the audiobooks of Clarissa Pinkola Estés. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you, yay. I have actually never listened to an audiobook, so I will head off and do that. Thank you, Amanda, would you like to go next? <laughs> okay? Yes. um so i I have a pile of books sitting here beside me, and I still haven't quite decided what we're going to do So there'll be a little bit of rustling while I do the unwrapping so that you can see it or actually just pull it out of the pile. So, Della, you're probably going to hate me for this, but um, I am bringing to you something called Rethinking Humanity which I'm trying to show you on our Zoom call. I'll show you later. It's not so much a book as a think tank paper. So it's it's not quite the easiest reading in the world, but it is the single most inspiring thing that I've read all year. And I've been reading inspiring books all year. I thought Jason Hickel's Less Is More was that until I read this, which even more than his book gives the ideas of where we're going how we could get there, and the possibilities opening up before us. And I'll put a link in the show notes. We'll all put links in the show notes to these. It's RethinkX is the think tank. The authors are James Arbib and Tony Seba. And I heard about it from Alex Barker, who I interviewed. She's the author of How to Be More Pirate, which I might have given you. But I thought the podcast had already heard about that. So let's bring in something new. And this is just, it's revolutionizing my ideas of what we can do. And I think it doesn't have the deep spirituality that Jason's book has towards the end, but it's got a lot of ideas of where the technology is going and the nature of disruption that we have a tendency to imagine everything is linear. And we know from systems thinking that nothing is linear in the way the world works. And they go through the way the iPhone and the motor car and various other things Created disruption so far beyond their own bubble, and that it was an S-shaped curve. It starts off slow and slow and slow, and then it just basically takes off into that hyperbolic leap, and then it it finally rounds off. But before it rounds off, it has changed the nature of how we function. And they give an outline of how we can move from the extractive system that we've been in basically since Neolithic times, since agriculture first became. A thing to a creative system, which is distributed and regenerative, and and at its heart and essence, creative, creative of communities, creative of stuff, creative of networks, creative of new democracies, and how the old system is in its rigidity, desperately trying to reassert the heydays of its past. We can see that all around us, and yet. The networks are growing. The the creativity is happening. And everything of human history teaches us that when a new system arises, the old system will fight, but the new one will emerge through the middle of it. So so that's for Della. Although anyone else who wants to read it can do. And then I'm still still trying to decide, Natalie, whether you would like fun fiction. Um or something a little bit deeper, and if a little bit deeper. So, I have three books for Natalie. We'll go very briefly. Good. So, one is English Pastoral by James Rebanks, which is gorgeous, beautifully written. James Rebanks is a farmer in north of England. It's a kind of a dirt to soil for Britain. Um, dirt to soil is is Gabe Brown's book on regenerative agriculture in, in the U.S. And this is James Rebanks went back to his grandfather's farm and realized having been a very traditional farmer and really feeling antagonism to the ecologists or the ecological people or generally metropolitan ecological people who are going, you know, your your farmers are all bad, they're doing everything wrong. And yet looking around and realizing that the land was dead and the rivers were dead and the ecosystems were collapsing and that he could change that. And he's planted tens of thousands of trees. They've completely altered the flow of the river to take it back to how it was. And he's got everything back except the corn crakes, I think, that were there in his grandfather's time. And it's just really inspiring. So there's that. Um, Very briefly, there's also Sacred Link, which is three years old now by Kay Cordell Whitaker, who's one of my kind of shamanic heroes. And this is, uh, it follows on from the Alan Watson Featherstone podcast of The Hive, which, as you know, I loved. And it's the the subtitle is Joining Forces with the Unknown. How can we really connect to the web of life? So that's a, a kind of second. And third, just because I thought we might have something a bit lighter. Have you come across Mick Herron, either of you? Okay. He's he's kind of the new, or oh, he's even more, he's not a new, he's in and of himself. He writes spy novels. So I was going to say the new John le Carré, but his are much more of this time and lively and sparky. And they're utterly brilliant. And this is, goodness knows, it's probably the sixth or seventh. But you need to go back to the beginning. The first one's called The Slow Horses. And the premise is that when MI5 wants to get rid of people, they can't sack them because they'll probably go off and write their memoirs and publish them and blow everything apart. So what they do is they put them off to this place called Slough House, which is where the slow horses come from, and give them the dullest possible work that you could possibly ever conceive of and just leave them there to rot on the basis that eventually they'll get tired and they'll leave of their own accord. And so that anyone who's really made a mistake or anybody that everybody hates or the people who've made political misjudgments, they all end up in slow house. And obviously the slow horses end up being the heroes of every single book, but in ways that are very anti-heroic. It's so much fun. And his outline of Boris Johnson a very obvious. It's anyway, he's got a different name, but you know, five or six years ago, it was like, oh yeah, Boris Johnson. Well, hey, you know what the hell? Okay, this is really interesting. This deeply ruthless, very <laughs> unpleasant character who manages to worm his way into the heart of government despite having no talent at all. And <laughs> I haven't read this one yet to see what he's doing with it because it's going to be very interesting. So uh, I thoroughly recommend them. They are absolutely totally entertaining. And just, you know, to get away from the havoc of the world turning over and our entire system collapsing and reforming itself, that'll give you fun. So there we go. That was, that was mine. So now it's your turn. What have you got? Well, so a couple
2: of the things that I was thinking of weaving into the conversation who have already been named, I was thinking of bringing in Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass, which is, of course, the most enchanting book. And Della, you already mentioned Women Who Run With The Wolves. I myself was very late to this and, um, it being written in the 1990s. I started reading it this year and have gifted it to two of my favorite women who live here in Barcelona. And one of the themes that I think were woven into both, which have led me into a different direction, I'm gonna give you the names of two books that you might not yet have heard of, but some of the themes are around the ways in which we tell stories and that we make space for different narratives to emerge and the importance of being able to see a different way forward, a different archetype we might inhabit, and also to reclaim some of the power that we have within ourselves, not domination over, but power within and with. And so the two books that um, that I have gifted myself, which I'm gifting to you both, but I have yet to read. So they are very, uh, very new and they're freshly wrapped in my living room waiting for Christmas. The first is called The Abundant Earth by Eileen Crist. And it's a fascinating looking book. I first heard her speak on the Civ podcast. And she talks about ways in which we need to work towards an ecological civilization. And she talks about things like extractivism, the human dominance approach we have, where we dominate one another, we dominate other species. And she offers different ways in which to confront the reality of what we're doing and ways in which we can move towards a different relational approach of engaging with the web of life. So that's the first one I would gift. The second one is by one of my favourite authors who wrote a book which was my favourite last year called The Enchanted Life. And her new book is called Foxfire, Wolfskin and Other Stories of Shape Shifting Women. And it's Sharon Blackie. And I know, Manda, you're familiar with her wonderful work. And she's just published this new book. And so I've bought myself this book and I'm waiting to read it. Um, and so I would definitely recommend this too, as well as a, a gift to walk through the veil and into the world of. Magical women and shape shifting. So, those would be my gifts
0: to you. Thank you both. Beautiful. Thank you. I really look forward. Yes, that's so uh, lots of readings still to be done. <laughs> okay. So, what we had planned next, and I astonishingly enough, we're still pretty much on track, is Della, you have a question that relates to your upstream podcast, and you are going to have a chance to answer it and also ask it. Of us. So, would you like to do that now?
3: I would love to. So, my podcast is called the Upstream Podcast, and it's based off of a metaphor, inspired by a metaphor that I believe comes from public health. At least that's where I first heard it. And the metaphor is that you imagine you're standing at the bank of a river and you see someone float by who's drowning. And so, you jump in and pull them to shore. But as soon as you do, you look up and you see other people floating down the river drowning. So you jump in and pull them to shore. Eventually you look up and there's just so many people floating down the river drowning that you call for help, you get other people involved, and eventually you or someone has to go upstream to figure out why people are falling in in the first place. So this metaphor was first told to me in the importance of not just doing intervention work for sexual assault survivors which is the field i was working in a while back but also to go upstream to prevention why does sexual violence happen how do how can we prevent it so that there aren't survivors who even need our services have to call the hotline etc so the that inspired the the podcast title which is about economics so thinking about the economic challenges of our time. But of course, for this conversation, I'll broaden that to whatever it is that breaks your heart or that concerns you, whatever societal or environmental issues. When you go upstream, what do you see as some of the root causes? And I will say over this year, I was in a presentation. I'm uh, supporting the CAPRA course. Off Capra offers a course on systemic uh, thinking. And one of his uh, students, Tanusha Prasad, she gave a just a very short line, but she said, uh, C- causation is a ball of yarn. There is no root cause, only a longitudinal layering of effects. Causation is a ball of yarn. There is no root cause, only a longitudinal layering of effects. And I have to say, I had a little bit of a questioning everything moment where I was like, oh, does this going upstream metaphor, does that portray a mechanical or a linear paradigm of causation and effect? And is not the world more systemic or complex? And so I will be totally fine if you throw out the metaphor and choose to answer in whatever way that you you wish. And I don't know what to do about the title and theme of the podcast anymore. But I, what I will say is, um, if I'll I'll answer the question first, and then I'd love to hear what you both uh, think and feel. But currently, where I am is a deep exploration of who we are as humans and who we have the capacity to be. And I'm working on a documentary right now on debunking the myth of Homo Economicus. So this idea that we as humans are rational, self-interested, separate from nature and others, and our and self, and also that we see work as a disutility, that we try to work as little as possible. So exploring that myth and where that came from and how it's been upheld in the discipline of economics and beyond, and also what what are the alternative views around who we are as humans? Are we actually altruistic, kind, compassionate beings who've lost our sense of deeper selves because of our Systems or cultures, or do we have the capacity for both? And it's about what we water and what is activated within us, and also what we choose to portray. So, for me, when I go upstream for now, right now, one of the things I think about is who we think of ourselves as humans, whether we see ourselves as, uh, you know, inherently altruistic, kind, and compassionate. Or egotistical, rational, self interested, or the potential for both. So that's that's what I'm exploring right now. So Manda, I'd love to ask you what what's going on for you when you take this journey upstream, when you explore the root causes of the challenges you see, and if that metaphor is not helpful, just at least what you're thinking about when you go deep, when you go to those uh, those deeper layers of causation.
0: Sure. Thank you. The metaphor does work for me. I I hear the concept of reframing it as an entanglement, but I think for me still, and it may break down if I think about it more deeply, but at the moment, very clearly for me, the root cause is our disconnect from the web of life, our sense of ourselves as outside of that. And it links back. I have just interviewed, for a podcast that will come out after this one, a really inspiring young man called Alnur Lada, who wrote a paper about something called the Wetiko also the Wendigo, which is a a concept in the First Peoples of the North Americas. And the idea is that if somebody got caught away from the rest of the tribe somehow, or there, there would have to be at least two people, and was driven to the point of cannibalism, where one person ate another. When they came back to the tribe, two things had happened. One, their their hearts had become icy and closed. They'd lost the capacity to connect with the rest of the tribe. And the second was that having had the taste of eating other people, they wanted more. And that this was not just something that happened to the individual, but it was a contagion that was possible when they came back to the tribe to pass to other people. And that Unless there was great care in the holding of the space, an entire tribe could become infected. And it was a kind of a story amongst the first peoples. It wasn't something that they saw very often. It was there in the mythology, until the white invaders arrived on their shores and they saw these people and saw the way that they behaved and thought the entire culture it has become infected with this wetico. and and that. When I read it and then wanted to interview Honor, went in very deeply. I have a big internal question that I've never resolved of what was the original inciting cause of that separation? Because we know that indigenous cultures in our Western European past and in some cases in the world still exist, where there's a connectivity, there's a sense of being absolutely part of the web of life. And nothing is separate. The Amazon jungle or the plains of the Mongols or the ice wastes of the Sami or any of the places in our deep and distant past. There was no other. There was us and us was everything. And it wasn't just the things that we would consider sentient now. It was the rocks and the trees as well as the red kite and the otter and the fungal mycelia beneath our feet. And what was it? So I, I the absolute answer to that question is, I don't know what caused that separation. But I believe the separation is what has led us to the extraction and the, the enslavement of ourselves and everybody else that is the hallmark of our culture. What it takes me to, though, is once in a while, I will read books by people who've had near-death experiences. And to a woman and a man, the ones who come back are absolutely of the belief that everything is as it needs to be. And that always does really bad things to my head because I look around and go, really, are you are you actually kidding? Have you any idea the, the trauma and the appalling things that are happening in our world? And yet, if I sit with that and think, if I were to reconnect with the web of life in the way that I know is possible and were to ask, what do you want of me? What is there in who we are now? Because I absolutely think our generation, those alive on the planet now, are the ones who have the capacity to make the difference. Either we head for a phase shift or we head for chaos and extinction. It's going to happen in our lifetimes. So what can we bring? What is it that the last 10,000 years of human evolution have done that makes it worth all of the absolute hell that has been wrought by our separation. So I don't have an answer to that either. So it's a kind of a, I think I'm not quite upstream enough yet. I'm, I'm still watching, I'm watching the place where the people hurl themselves in, but I haven't worked out why they're doing it. So it's a half of an answer, but I still think the metaphor definitely stands up.
3: Thank you. And Natalie?
2: Well, I'm sitting here listening to you both Weave your wisdom, and I'm not entirely sure what I can contribute. I think one of the things that strikes me that I've been thinking on, especially this year, and especially when it comes to the seemingly senselessness of pain that is wrought upon people, of the suffering that we must endure, and obviously the growth that comes from that if we choose or have the resources to be able to use it to move forward. I think one of the things that I've been thinking about is how do we find ways to work with what's happening, to work with what we experience in order to make it something which allows us or fuels our transformation. Because I think the question of going upstream, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if it's a question of, you know, on, on one level, I think, well, maybe this is just a fundamental truth of existing in physical reality, that suffering exists, that growth happens through difficulty, and that that's an aspect that we must at some level come to accept. If you take kind of more of a Buddhist or Zen perspective, this idea that suffering is inherent to our experience as embodied beings, then the question becomes, well, if if that exists and is woven into the fabric of physical embodiment, maybe there isn't an upstream, but maybe we can change how we relate to it and change what we do with it. And so I've been thinking a bit about ways in which and times at which I feel really disconnected or cut off and what I can do to reconnect. And at that point of reconnection is a thing that gives a thread of hope again. And one of the things that weaves into that is then this idea of ritual. We've lost so much ritual of reconnection, whether it's to ourselves, which I think is sacrosanct, and that we're not encouraged to have. And I think the same applies to men and to women. We've lost that sense of ritual connection with ourselves, whether it's through dance, or through chant or through singing, or movement, or whatever it might be. We've lost that sense of ritual between one another. And we've lost that sense of of ritual between ourselves and the web of life. And I think that tool, which has become so forgotten or distant in so many cultures and replaced with other rituals which serve systems which are abstractions and models that serve to empower those at the top. So I'm thinking in my instance this would be Catholicism but it could be any kind of structure which siphons power to the very few. Those structures seem to have replaced the foundations upon which we build ritual to enrich our lives. So I think there's something there around what rituals can we engage in with ourselves, with each other and with the web of life that allow us to reconnect and allow us to make the most of the difficult experiences that we face, which are inherently a part of embodied existence? That's, that's where I go with that question.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. So the next idea was that we were
0: going to have a chance each to reflect on the highlights of our own podcasts from the past year. What stood out for us? What really has been the theme, perhaps, of this year, from where we started at the beginning of 2020, where it's left us now, and moving towards the end, we could have a little bit of looking ahead to what we think 2021 could bring. I have this idea that, certainly in the UK, and I think possibly in the US, at this time of year, the radio programmes and the television are full of pundits making their predictions for 2021. And they're always wrong but that's fine and i suspect this year they'll be even more wrong than they have ever been at any point before but i don't see any reason why we shouldn't jump on that bandwagon and having had a look at what this year has brought give our sense of what the next year might bring and this time next year we can compare our notes and see how we were doing so does anybody want to go first stick your hand up in a way that i can see <laughs> <laughs> no hands are going up okay i'm going to flip an internal coin and it comes out tails stella
3: Yeah. So looking back at this year of the Upstream podcast, I did a series of interviews and then have been working on two documentaries. One is the homo economicus one that I spoke about. And the other one is feminist economics, which won't actually come out till next year. But just to say those two have been themes for me. But in terms of the conversations, I spoke with folks like Richard Wolff, who's a Marxist economist at the New School, who has his own podcast called Economic Update. Spoke with Doug Henwood, a journalist. Jason Hickel, who we've already mentioned. Julius Salazar, the New York State senator, um, who does, or who's part of the democratic socialist movement in the U.S. And Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, a doctor and politician. And I would say all of those folks really revealed in the interviews that it's actually the title of Richard Wolff's latest book, The Sickness is in the System, The Sickness is in the System, how there's COVID-19 as a epidemic, as a phenomenon, and then there's the exacerbation of the, at least I have to say, particularly in the United States and other neoliberal capitalist countries, but that the system has exacerbated the suffering has exacerbated the death, the desperation, the economic insecurity. Uh, There was one quote from the London School of Economics that I read. It said, COVID-19 is an inequality ratchet, and it's been ratcheting inequality. And so I've really sensed that and really heard that from folks, that the systems are being revealed to be not supportive of public health and not supportive of human and planetary well-being even more intensely this year. And again, I speak from a U.S. perspective, of course. So that, that was definitely a theme. And then the second theme, though, was the opportunity. The opportunity for systems change that is also possible when we've had this break of our normal existences. And so... I also spoke with Mark Lakeman, for example, who really talks about how do we reclaim our public spaces? How do we reclaim our sense of belonging to place, place placemaking, and our connection and cohesiveness with community? So that was inspiring. And so what what COVID-19 could offer in terms of uh, placemaking, slowing down, reconnecting with ritual, as you said, Natalie And also getting to know community. The other thing that's happened to me this year was I was um, unfortunately affected by the wildfires of California. I'm in the Santa Cruz Mountains and was evacuated. Certainly from that experience, I saw so much disaster collectivism, this sense of people supporting one another, gift giving to one another, rebuilding together, um, and coming out of that even more interconnected and kind and compassionate and, and helpful and now there's so many more systems of disaster preparedness not just for individuals but for communities so that's been inspiring so seeing the opportunity with what's all happened in 2020 and I'll, I'll say you know the last piece one of the last actually the last interview that I did which will be a part of the feminist economics episode was with a woman named Karara Jabula Karola, and she is a Filipina woman who lives in Hawaii. She's the executive director of the Hawaiian Commission for the Status of Women. And she wrote co-wrote a paper called Building Bridges, Not Walking on Our Backs, A Feminist Economics Recovery to COVID-19. And it's really powerful, and it's getting a lot of great attention and and inspiring many other folks around the world. And I think that just also speaks to this possibility and new opportunity. Uh, and again, it also speaks to the inequality of there's been so many women who've dropped out of the labor force to take care of children. I, I don't have children of my own, but I work with so many women who are doing their zoom calls for work with with infants or toddlers on their laps or having to manage homeschooling or, the calls of their children, or just children who've been inside all day on Zoom. So I would say that the, that's one inequity that's been experienced and felt during COVID-19. And a potential for a feminist economic recovery is inspiring to me, and definitely part of that potential for the systems change that we're, we're working for and hoping for. So yeah, those would those would be some of my themes from this yeah. year of the podcast. Natalie, what about you? What's happened on the hive? I know you were working on a book this year, so you took <laughs> a little uh, change in 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 the podcast, but I'd love to hear
2: well, I have indeed been writing a book which meant that the um the season which was meant to come out in the summer got uh, shelved until December because um. It was, yeah, writing a book is a very cave-like endeavor to engage in. So um, the last season that I did, we looked at a lot of the themes that were coming up around the time that people were going into lockdown in April and May. And one of the things I wanted to do with that particular season was to provide companionship or space to people who wanted to dive into some of these difficult questions that COVID was creating. So one of the conversations that I really enjoyed, which, which was um, talking about reorienting consciousness in times of crisis, was with one of my dear friends, Dr. Erin Balick, who is a wonderful, thoughtful, wise, irreverent, brilliant psychotherapist, fantastic person. And we kind of unpicked some of the issues around what happens when we face uncertainty, how can we form greater resilience? And some of the other conversations that flowed from that looked at things like the blurring of public and private life. So Joshua Macht, who is the executive VP of Harvard Business Review, we talked about some of the ways in which our um, more intimate selves come into relationship with our business lives, with the kids in the background or the dogs or what have you, and how we've had to enlarge our idea about what is acceptable to bring into our work life. So this sense of having a greater sense of self when you're with your colleagues, having a greater sense of compassion, a greater sense of understanding. So that was another theme that that came up for me. Another one, um, one of my favourite episodes, was with a beloved friend of mine. Her name is Blanche Ellis. And we talked about attention and transformation and the power of everyday creativity. And I think creativity is one of these things that we tend to assume that very few people have. We kind of reserve it for the elite artist or the famous singer or whatever it might be. And we forget that actually small acts of attention giving and observation and creation can transform our experience of the everyday and the mundane, and they can create a space in which we get to relate more deeply and more intimately, especially when we're kind of lacking that stimulation or depth um, in kind of restricted lives with all the restrictions. I also had the chance to speak with Amanda, which was another wonderful conversation. You should go and listen to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then there were two other themes. So one of the things that I found really interesting was ways in which we can live better. So this this idea about redesigning systems around compassion and courage and cooperation, which is a conversation I had with Jennifer Morgan, a fascinating woman who's also the International Executive Director of Greenpeace, and then looking most recently with a new season at what we conceive of as power and transformation and how we can live our most full and genuine and authentic lives and I was a bit nervous about having that conversation to kick off the new season because my professional self the other aspects of me looks at psychology and behavior and business and values and you know online persuasion and the aspect of me which enjoys talking about ritual and depth and mysticism and the mythic imagination kind of doesn't get to play in that field and so this is kind of a way to build a bridge between the two so um yeah, those are just some of the highlights that I wanted to share. So Amanda, over to you. What, what were the highlights for your podcast this year?
0: Thank you. Well, speaking on your podcast was quite high on the list. So this was my first year of podcasting. I feel very much like the baby in the room because you guys have been running for a while. And, and this was our first year. And, and this episode is our anniversary, birthday, whatever we like to call it, episode. So the whole year has been one of discovery. A very, very long time ago, in my writing past, I did one of these residential workshops with Terry Pratchett, the late, very great Terry Pratchett. Um, I am, in fact, the only person in the world who has played Dungeons and Dragons with Terry Pratchett and Amazing. Faye Weldon. Different years, different times, but um, that was part of my past. I was the geek who had the entire set of D&D dice in my bag wherever I went. Um, however, and he said once that writing was the most fun anybody could have with their clothes on. And no, he's completely wrong because podcasting is so much more fun. So what I really discovered is that it feels as if this brings together everything I've always wanted to do. I get to read things by extraordinary people and then I get to write them an email and go, would you like to be on the podcast? And you know, about eight times out of 10, they go, yeah, okay. Which is just amazing. So I've got to talk to people that I really, really respect and ask them the questions that I always wanted somebody to ask them that nobody else ever seems to get around to, except you guys, obviously. Because I do steal people occasionally, particularly from Della. Mark Lakeman did come. And in that case, it's been really interesting to be able to go, okay, you said this on the Upstream podcast. Where would you go after that? And then people can go back and listen. And we create then uh, an ecosystem. Of podcasts that I think is useful because that too has been one of my big realizations of the year. I used to live when I lived on my own with Radio 4, so effectively UK sensible talk radio in the background, just all day. And there were bits that I didn't really want to listen to, but it was on because I lived on my own and I just left it on. And I came to really dislike the BBC over the last few years and discover that I could curate my own listening by listening to podcasts. And it's been transformative. I don't have the same amount of time, and they're definitely not on all the time. And being in COVID and not driving anymore, which was my main podcast listening time, has cut it a lot. But that also has been revelatory. But in in really in brief, the theme through the year has been that one of that both of you have mentioned of the disconnection the fact that the sickness is in the system, being able to examine that in in various ways, kind of put the laser in on activism. We we talked to Gail Bradbrook and then Jill Coombs about Extinction Rebellion and the nature of activism. There was a point when this my podcast, the Accidental Gods podcast, was going to be called The Spirit of Activism. And my beloved wife said that that might narrow it down too much and people might not want to listen. But still, for me, that's been a lot of what it is. So we really have looked at at that. What is it where spirituality and activism meet? What is it when they meet on the land? Mary Reynolds and Abel Pearson, two very different people, one in Ireland, one in Wales, but really bringing life back to the land in a way that feeds people but also feeds everything and sucks carbon in from the air, which is magical. Mickey Cashtan gave one of the quotes that has underlain everything else I've ever done. She said that the the wounding of our system is of separation, scarcity, and powerlessness. And that really sank in. First, Gail Bradbrook said it to me, and then I interviewed Mickey. And understanding that, and getting a sense that if we could heal those bits of wounding, this is a little bit upstream, then we would be on the way to healing that which is broken. Uh, I spoke to Rob Shorter, who works with Kate Rayworth, who is one of my all-time economics heroes, and they had just launched the Donut Economics Action Lab. And Amsterdam had just committed to being a donut city, which was just even three years ago, when Della was one of my teachers on the Masters in Economics at Schumacher, if someone had said that one of the foremost cities in the world would have committed to being a donut city within a couple of years, I would have thought you were crazy. But the world is changing really fast and there are people who really get it. And one of my class members is now working for the government in the Netherlands on circular economy and, and how we can make the economics different. And then towards the end, we moved a bit into Natalie's area and began to look at business. We spoke to Mike Raven of AQAI and then Alex Barker of how to Be More Pirate. And each of them is coming from the world of business, but then moving that out into, we need to change the system. Right at the start of How to Be More Pirate, the person who wrote Be More Pirate, Sam Conniff, wrote the kind of forward, And he said, the thing is that the problems will not be fixed by fixing the problems. Because what we need to do is go to what's causing the problems, which is the system. And he called that the business model. But what we call it doesn't matter. I think what's clear from all three of us is that we are all immersed in the space where we know that problems will not be fixed by fixing the problems, that we have to go upstream, that we have to expand our sense of who we are and where we're going in order to begin to give people the agency to make the changes that need to happen. So that, I think, that that last one has been the big theme of my year is how do we give, on a podcast-by-podcast podcast basis, a sense that we do have agency, and then of what we can actually do in go-out-of-the-front-door-now-and-do-it terms to make a difference. So it's, it's early days and small steps, but I think all of us are doing that in our way, which is why... I think the kind of ecosystem of podcasts that we are part of is so inspiring. And five years ago, this wasn't happening. You know, change is happening very, very fast now. So thank you, all of you. So with that, moving us on, I had a question which I have been asking of myself and of the Accidental God students and would like now to put out into the world which is my core question, really, that's animating me, which is, what are we here for? We, individually, as as single people, and we as a species, humanity, and we as the much, much bigger scope of the web of life. And I often don't get to answer this, and partly I don't get to answer it because it is much easier to ask questions than it is to answer them. And I don't have. An absolutely clear answer, except the felt sense of what has animated accidental gods from the beginning, which is, I feel that we're right on the edge of a phase shift so huge that it will be similar to the shift from being forager hunters to being an agricultural species, or the shift from being prokaryotic to eukaryotic, so single-celled cells two cells with a nucleus, things that are so profound that the world of consciousness, the whole of the space that we live in, will never be the same again. And that the only thing that I can see, the only way that our evolutionary path makes sense, if we are in the right place at the right time, is that we have reached a space where we can consciously choose to be other than we are. We can make that next evolutionary step, one of consciousness, consciously chosen. So I think that's what we're here for. I don't know yet how we do it, but I think that the sense of connectedness that we need and that we know is missing is an inherent part of what we're doing. And that every time we reach out online or in person, whether we're creating communities of purpose at a distance or communities of place, in the villages, the towns, the cities that we live in, then we are building the connectedness that we need to be able to reach out to the rest of the web of life. So it's an incomplete answer, but it's the best that I have at the moment. So Della, you are next on the list because I can see you. So have you any concept of what are we here for, either individually or collectively or both?
3: I would say... We, and I mean, us three, my definitely myself, humanity, and all the beings in the web of life, I would say we're here for harmony and ease. I would say we're here for those moments. uh, I'm imagining a lion who's hungry and eats an antelope and then is no longer hungry and walks past. A a flock of birds, or antelope, or gazelles—that sense of ease and contentment, uh, moments of lack of greed—and for us humans, the same thing. This, I'm here for those moments where the decisions, the choices, the actions, the behaviors that I make are in alignment. That I feel a sense of deep integrity that I'm making choices that are turning towards life, that are life-thriving and life-supportive. And those moments even where we're in conflict or disagreement, and yet we turn towards one another, we call each other in, we find common ground. So I'm I'm here for those moments where things feel, may not be like a pleasure or happiness or all is peachy, but just a sense where things feel in a deeper sense well and good and harmonious and useful. And I'm here for those moments.
0: Magic. Thank you. That's, I love it. And that turning towards life. I remember you saying that so often and it's one of those things that I need daily to remember. Thank you. So Natalie, have you ideas of what we are here for?
2: Well... (laughs) I don't know what we're here for. I've thought many years about this question and the best answer I can come up with is what we choose to do with why we're here. So what meaning can we make with the life that we've been given? And I think that's perhaps in some ways an easier question to answer, in some ways harder um, because then it puts the agency right back in your hands. And so I think the question then becomes what what is it that each of us can offer one another and ourselves, that enables us to live the richest lives possible. How can we be in service? How can we live in a way that feels abundant and wholehearted and in a way that gives other people permission to unlock themselves, to unlock that access within themselves? And I think that's one of the things that this year in particular has made me really question is, well, what is it that I'm here for? How can I apply these questions and inquiries to unlock that question in myself to then offer something that's actually going to be meaningful and valuable to other people. And the difficult thing is that when you ask that question and you unlock the door and you're faced with a landscape that maybe you didn't expect, how then do you take the tentative steps out onto that territory without a map? So for me, it might be, well, you know, I've been spending my life writing books, um, synthesizing, research information that's interesting but it's not soul nourishing at least not to the level that I would like and then confronted with the question well if that's not what the territory looks like for you where the meaning is held how can you turn into this unknown space and what does that look like and for me I think it connects more with holding the space like this like you both with our voices and inquiry and creating a home for these kinds of conversations to unfold And for people to feel able to inquire without being humiliated, without being afraid, without being shamed out of asking difficult questions, I think that's really important to hold a safe space in which we can have deeper discussion. And also maybe further down the line, maybe that's my fear speaking, how I could use my voice, my music, my art, my physical body to gather people together to do work that reconnects. And I don't know what that looks like yet, but that's how I would begin to answer that question.
0: That feels so alive and so magical. Thank you. Well, I look forward. I really look forward to reading your new book, but also that sense of holding a safe space for a deeper discussion and that aliveness coming out of that. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Della, did you want to say something there? You looked as if you I might just be. just wanted
3: there. to uplift soul nourishing, you know, soul nourishing, I guess. Yeah, and if I were to have a gift for you, <laughs> Natalie, too, you know, just that, That I love that you said that this new season is a bridge for you. So just wishing for you that all of your work is soul nourishing uh, for yourself and for your listeners and readers and those that you work with. I think that's a beautiful invitation for us all. Yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate that, Della.
0: And we were heading our next part. We were going to offer our gift to 2021, either to the listeners or to the year ahead, and also our vision for 2021. And what came to me there completely out of the blue and not what I'd planned at all was that for all of us, for all three of us, and I think for the people listening, our sense of flourishing, our sense of freedom, our sense of safety would be considerably enhanced with a universal basic income. And that That it has its problems and it would need to be attached to universal basic services and universal rent controls. And this is not the time and the place, really, to go into that. But I am just going to step in and offer it first that my gift to 2021, were I able to do it, would be an absolute global universal basic income so that people are free to be what makes their souls sing and to bring all of themselves to the world without the havoc of being part of a system that is predicated on scarcity. Uh, And my vision for 2021 that arises out of that is of a world where abundance is the baseline, where we know that, where we're not afraid, where we're not trying to grab stuff because we're afraid there isn't enough, where we're not all playing an endless game of musical chairs where somebody's grabbing the last chair and we're having to fight over it, where the world, the reality of the world, is that there is enough and that then we can Be who we really want to be. So I kind of jumped the gun a little bit, but now I'm going to hand over to whoever would like to go next to share their gift and vision for 2021. Sure. Um, So one thing I've
2: really missed this year is being able to take walks on Hampstead Heath, even though I live in Barcelona now and not in London. (laughs) One of my favourite places to be is Hampstead Heath, especially when the crows come at dusk and it fills with this amazing cawing sound. It's just magical. So my gift for 2021 would be that everyone gets the chance to weave nature into their daily lives, to be able to go and take a walk, to grow a plant, even if it's a little cheeky succulent on the balcony or the windowsill. Or like me, I grew a bunch of chillies and accidentally they all worked and then my... (laughs) My little glorietta ended up being completely full, so I still have chilies coming out of my ear holes. But yeah, to be able to have some contact with mm, life that is other than human in the coming year. And then my vision. My vision is that enough of us hold hope and space and direction and practical ideas and visionary ideas and creative ideas to weave a map that allows us to take the steps we need to take To move forward and build new systems and i'm not sure exactly what that looks like yet but in my mind when i think of the vision for the new year i think of like a a nodal web in which our voices are part of the ecosystem in which books become part of the ecosystem in which people who are making legislation to give bodies of water personhood are part of the legislation like all of these different nodes connected together and i see it as this kind of golden Web that encircles the earth with these points of light, these kind of fire hearths that attract other like minds, so that we can all kind of lend our efforts in whatever way is possible to a much greater movement that will tip us into something which is much more resilient and much more
3: fair and much more regenerative. Della, how about you? Beautiful. Well, I echo and uplift both of your visions. Uh, I would say my my gift for twenty twenty one would be seeds. I had the beautiful experience this year of taking a permaculture design course.
2: Amazing.
3: I had never taken when I had taken social permaculture, but never the full permaculture design course. And so I had that beautiful experience of earth care, people care, fair share, and the learning of all the permaculture principles and practices, gray water, wetlands, and all of that. So beautiful. Yeah. So, so I would say one of the gifts to me from this year was learning about seeds. So I would carry that to 2021 and give the gift of seeds. And for example, I had the opportunity in that to design a native edible community garden. And it addressed both, you know, the restoration of ecosystem, also honoring of the native peoples who use those plants for food or medicine, and also the ecological colonization that has taken place. So gift of seeds uh, for people to connect with ancestral seeds. Uh, I'm thinking of people who've come from other places to the United States who've brought seeds with them from their families or ancestries. So connecting with that ancestral lineage, those seeds, but connecting also with native plants, seeds of place, Uh, And also just connecting with the abundance that both of you mentioned of nature, the inherent gift giving nature, the apple tree does not ask for anything in return for its bounty of apples that it gives us every year. So just that, that sense of seeds and the abundance that comes with seeds and also the resilience that seeds carry with them. So seeds, both in a metaphorical sense of folks planting new intentions, projects, and connections, and also the physical gift of a seed to plant and reforest and rewild and connect with a more-than-human world in that way. And in terms of a vision for 2021, I'm reminded of one of uh, the folks in the permaculture design course that I was just in she's a amazing activist feminist post-capitalist activist and she she would fight and fight and fight and had a very feisty uh, attitude and told me recently that this year she came to realize uh, that she wanted to take a more gentle and positivist approach meaning uh to get folks to uh join her efforts through conversation and through invitation. And it reminded me of this quote by Buckminster Fuller. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. So my vision for 2021 is that we continue to build the models, the communities, the relationships that are life-supportive, life-nourishing, life-thriving, and that folks feel so invited, so inspired by how much fun we're having, how much beauty there is, how much connection, how much health we feel that they want to join us, and that those new systems or systems based on ancient wisdom are truly inclusive and invitational, and that that global capitalist sea or that sea of extraction exploitation just simply falls away to give rise to these islands of alternatives that we uplift. So it's a real, uh, not a fighting, but a, but a building, an inviting, an inclusiveness that, yeah, gives rise to these changes that we've been speaking about. So that would be my vision for 2021.
0: Thank you. That feels like a really good place to end. We were going to do predictions for 2021, but I think our hopes for 2021 are probably a lot safer and are not going to come back in a year's time to bite us. And that just, as a a feeling, as a way to head into the new year, that felt really (laughs) beautiful. So as we're heading towards the end, thank you to Natalie and to Della and to you for listening. We're releasing this at the solstice, the dark night of the year. The time when the year turns, the time when we can turn, the time when we can sit with all the lights off and maybe just a candle flame and really reflect on where we've been and where we want to go, where we can ask the question of the year still to come, what do you want of me, and sit with whatever comes under the dark sky with the world alive outside and all the potential of the new year ready to stretch out in front of us. So thank you all for being there. Thank you, Della. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, everyone who is part of our podcasting ecosystem. And if you've enjoyed this, and if it sits well with you, share it, because community is everything, and that's what we're trying to build.
1: We shall be known by the company we keep, by the ones who circle round to tend these fires. We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth. It is time now. It is time now that we thrive it is time we lead ourselves into the well it is time now and what a time to be alive in this great turning we shall learn to lead in love in this great turning we shall learn to lead in love We shall be known by the company we keep, by the ones who circle round to tend these fires. We shall be known by the ones who sow and reap the seeds of change alive from deep within the earth. It is time now. It is time now. thrive. It is time we lead ourselves into the well. It is time now, and what a time to be alive. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love. In this great turning, we shall learn to lead in love.
0: So that's it for our first anniversary edition. Huge thanks to Natalie and Della for creating a new tradition, for sharing ideas and book and visions of how the world could be. We will put links in the show notes of all the things that we mentioned. And we'll be back shortly, possibly sooner than a week if we get round to what I had planned. But I want to take this time to thank Caro C for epic sound production all year and for writing and recording the signature theme at the head and foot of the podcast. I also want to thank Jill Coombs and Eloise Gillow for stepping up and helping with the transcripts, which has absolutely transformed my Mondays. Thank you both. And thanks to Faith, as ever, and thanks to Faith, as ever, for being all that you are. For a year of redesigning the website, of updating it endlessly whenever I ask, for listening to ideas and telling me which ones were going to work and which ones were really not, and for being right most of the time. And thanks to you for listening. It has been an extraordinary year, but in the world of podcasts, it has been entirely inspired, and we would not be here without you so thank you for being there and if you know of anybody else who would really like to be part of this ecosystem of ecosystem that is creating the more flourishing world that our hearts know is possible then do send them this link and that's it for now see you next thank you and goodbye